Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FNS On Air. I'm your co-host, Pietro Bordaletto, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Dr. Eve Feinberg and Dr. Kurt Barnhart. Eve, Kurt, how are you guys? Good morning. It's insanely early in Chicago, so thanks for having me record so early. Hello, Eve. Hello, Pietro. Great to be here, as always. Eve, I'm hoping you've had a cup of that delicious coffee already, or not yet? (laughs) No, this is uh, water with lemon. (laughs) Well, the viewers can't see us, but I, I absolutely have a large cup of coffee in my hand. We're sad to not have Micah Hill join us today. He's recovering from COVID. We wish him well and hope a speedy recovery and hope he's able to make it to the ASRM meeting. Um, but we got lots of good science to talk about today. There's a, a really outstanding views and review section in this month's Fertility and Sterility organized by Madeline Von Wendley, um, which is a kind of a breakdown on the topic of miscarriage, real miscarriage, recurrent miscarriage, sporadic miscarriage, and really digs into some of the etiologies of it, genetic, infectious, but really ends with a very nice article on interventions to prevent miscarriage. So if you're a fellow, this is a really nice background knowledge. If you're attending, this is some stuff that you probably didn't know, but wish you did. I encourage everyone to take a look at it. It's a really outstanding series that breaks down a kind of a complex and very patient, important topic. Kurt, you also have something from the editor-in-chief this month. It's a non-traditional item talking about scientific integrity in the Research Integrity Committee at Fertility and Sterility. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that committee is doing? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I, I hope people are aware that there's been a resurgence in the last, let's call it, decade of really looking at the research in a new way. And the new way is not necessarily a good way, um, or depends how you look at it. People are looking at it with a, a new eye for, is the data we're really seeing what it appears to be? And there have been a lot of allegations that there's a lot of there's literature in our field that is um, simply not correct infactual and in some cases even manufactured, made up. The trial never happened. So behind the scenes, there have been a number of articles that have undergone review to say, did they actually happen and prove to me that they actually happened? That's a big deal, as you can imagine, because an accusation can really be damaging to people if untrue, but equally important is if the accusation is true and that trial never happened, it should not be in our literature and should be affecting patient care. I wrote a brief editorial describing how important research integrity is and for all the important reasons of public trust, scientific trust, uh, training the new generation, uh, and recognizing that uh, we have to carry that as paramount. And ASRM, because they're our partner, gives us more resources than many other journals. And we've started a research integrity committee, which takes care of all these allegations, um, is advisory to me, and then we can make a very good decision on whether we think this research withstands time or perhaps should be retracted. And we have had retractions, at least 10 retractions and probably more from fertility and sterility spanning over the the past 10 to 15 years. And I just wanted to bring to everyone's attention how important that topic was. So please take a quick look and please look at the research with a new eye and make sure you really believe the the literature is real. 
important to point out to our listeners, if you suspect misconduct in research or want to flag something for the journal, there's a way for you to do that through the fertstert.org website on our main page. If you look under the, the subsections, there's a way to report or initiate the conversation about scientific misconduct. It's a place where you guys can all go. Kurt, on the topic of research, I want to take a quick five-second pause from our podcast and highlight something that you were awarded this weekend as it re- relates to research. I got an email notification that you were inducted to the National Academy of Medicine. How cool is that? Congratulations. It's amazing and so well-deserved. Thank you, Pietro. It's quite an honor. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely honor that recognizes you know, a lifelong body of research, and I hope research with integrity. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful select group of people um, across medicine that uh, really are out for the greater good. There's committees by the National Academy of Medicine to, to look into many things and, and better society and better medicine. And I'm pleased and honored to be a part of it. Kurt, I'm going to embarrass you for a second. In your citation for the recognition, the National Academy of Medicine said, through his research and clinical care focused on evidence-based medicine, Dr. Barnhart has helped to set the standard of OBGYN and fertility care worldwide. That's kind of cool. Did our listeners know that Dr. Barnhart has published over 321 publications as of yesterday evening when I was preparing this? At least that's what PubMed told me. And that you've been cited over 9,500 times, Kurt. Did you know that? That's kind of crazy. But let's go back to 1992, your very first paper. I managed to dig it up. It's one with my old mentor, Steve Spandorfer. And you guessed it. It was on brand. It's entitled Endometrial Stripe Thickness as a Predictor of Ectopic Pregnancy. And Kurt, your first paper looks like it was published in Fertility and Sterility. (laughs) Well, I didn't recognize you're going to embarrass me today, Pietro, but thank you. Um, Yes, it's been a long journey. And I think what I consider my biggest accomplishment in this hopefully continuing career in research and infertility is, is the wonderful people I've worked with. And Steve was a fellow at the time, and I've had the privilege of working with many fellows since then. And without the University of Pennsylvania and all those wonderful, intelligent fellows to prop me up, I don't think this career could have gone anywhere. So, But thank you for the recognition. And I think your patients probably said it best. I pulled up one of your online reviews, Kurt, at Penn Fertility Care, and they said, I really like Dr. Barnhart. He had a kind way about him and was obviously deeply involved in research as well, which I'm a big fan of. I felt like he was on the cutting edge of his field, and he was very kind. I think, your, you patient, again, I think your patients got it exactly right, Kurt. Congratulations from all of us at Fertility and Sterility. Kurt, enough about you. Let's talk about the science. And let's start off with the seminal contribution from this month. I think the VOD team does it again. We have some new data, Kurt and Eve, on mosaic embryos and their reproductive potential. Eve, why don't you tell us more? This paper is titled Chromosomal Gestational and Neonatal Outcomes of Embryos Classified as Mosaic by Preimplantation Genetic Testing for Aneuploidy. And this is the same group that published the previous paper on 1,000 mosaic embryo transfers with Manuel Viotti as the first author and senior author, Francesca Spinella. The objective of this study was to understand the clinical risks associated with transfer of embryos classified as mosaic by PGTA. I think everybody at this point knows that embryonic mosaicism is the presence of cells with different chromosomal copy numbers within a single embryo. We think that this happens with mitotic errors post-fertilization, Meiotic errors, in contrast, occur on the germline, and those give rise to uniformly abnormal embryos. The authors discuss how prenatal testing indicates that mosaicism resolves during most pregnancies. The paper doesn't address the controversy of whether mosaic embryos are really mosaic or whether they reflect a misinterpretation of copy number. 
There have been several previous publications on mosaic embryo transfer, and again, including one by many authors in this group on outcomes related to mosaic embryo transfer. And in fact, a subset of mosaic embryo transfers in this manuscript have been published in previous papers. The study was a collaboration between nine fertility clinics uh, through the International Registry of Mosaic Embryo Transfers, and this paper reports on 2,031 mosaic transfers, 914 of those resulted in a positive HCG, and 711 resulted in live birth. 195 of these were spontaneous abortions, and eight pregnancies were terminated. Though there were 711 live births in the registry, there were 488 babies that were included in this study. And what they did was they matched those to a child who had a euploid embryo transfer. Of the 488 babies born, one had a major congenital anomaly that involved the aorta. There were only eight postnatal karyotypes that were performed, but all of those were normal. Not surprisingly, they found that mosaic embryos had a higher rate of spontaneous abortion, and it was 22% when they compared that to euploid embryo transfer, which was 8.9%. They also found that embryos with whole chromosome mosaicism had the highest rates of spontaneous abortion, 27.6 and 395 of those pregnancies ended in miscarriage. There were no differences in average birth weight or gestational age at delivery between babies born from euploid, mosaic, and whole chromosome mosaic embryos. What I found novel about this paper compared to the previous, and a little bit scary, is that there were patients that had prenatal test results that reflected the mosaicism detected at the embryonic stage. Of these, two terminated the pregnancy, and one delivered a newborn that was visually healthy but had no further testing performed. I would have liked to see more detailed information on the eight terminations of pregnancy. Overall, I think it adds to the growing body of literature surrounding mosaic embryo transfer. And I do think really important to know that prenatal testing did identify three fetuses that were mosaic. It really does lend strength to the controversy that mosaic may actually mean mosaic with two different cell lines, and that it may not entirely be a misinterpretation of bioinformatics. I think registries such as these, as well as careful counseling for patients undergoing mosaic embryo transfer, are very much needed. But I thought that this paper had a little bit more caution in its messaging than prior papers on mosaic embryo transfer. Kurt, Pietro, what do you think? I thought the exact same thing that you mentioned, Eve, like what's going on with these terminated pregnancies? Is there something that they're not telling us? And I actually dug through the supplementary uh, material, and I think in table one, there's a little bit more information about three of the eight pregnancies that were terminated. And interestingly enough, one was uh, a microarray that was abnormal that showed uniparental disomy and mosaicism. Interestingly, of a different chromosome than what the PGT had reported. The other one kind of showed persistent mosaicism in CVS and amniotic tissue. And then the final one actually showed a persistent deletion that was present in brain tissue, but not in villus tissue or the myocardium. This is, I think, where the magic is. I think we really need to understand these pregnancies that are being terminated and transferred and these pregnancies that are being carried to term and delivered and really sort out the story is, are we all kind of mosaic at birth and this is just, just normal or does mosaicism kind of wax and wane over the course of pregnancy? And if you make it beyond that first trimester, it's not that big of a deal. Um, I think the authors point out to this in the discussion section where they say, if you if you make it past the implantation failure and make it past the risk of miscarriage, these tend to be pretty straightforward, normal, healthy babies that are born. Is that yeah. how you interpret it, Eve? I think it's a stretch though, because 
many of these pregnancies had NIPT, which looks at five chromosomes, and very few of these pregnancies had karyotypes or microarrays after birth. And so I think I found this to be a lot scarier than previous papers that said all babies are born healthy, no abnormalities. And I think previous to this, there's only been one report in the literature of a single patient after mosaic embryo transfer that had an ongoing mosaic pregnancy. So this definitely adds more to the literature. And I think it it's a little bit frightening. And I think it affirms the idea of having genetic counseling and careful follow-up of these pregnancies. Yeah, I'll take that one step further, Eve. I think this opens a, a, a new Pandora's box for me. I think that we are very used to PGTA giving us a yes or no answer, and we are uncomfortable with mosaicisms. And this paper shows me that we should need to be even more uncomfortable with the, the, the answer we're getting. Even mosaicisms isn't the story. A euploid embryo is not normal, and having minor or difficult to detect chromosomal abnormalities is not necessarily normal. So I think what I took from it is most babies are okay, but we don't have a very good test for all of the genetic issues that can happen. I guess I can't rely on the PGTA for everything all the way through, you know, implantation, all the way through genetic testing, and, and it doesn't guarantee a healthy baby. So I know I'm taking it in the, in the reverse, but I think we're at the infancy of understanding what these tests actually are showing us. Um, that's what I took out of it. I was going to say, it goes back to an earlier views and reviews that I put together about a year ago, and I was really struck by the section that was written by Jamie Griffo and one of the genetic counselors saying, like, we probably don't need to counsel mosaic embryo transfers differently. We actually need to counsel all PGTA in the inherent limitations in the testing that, like, we make this big point about counseling mosaic embryos, but we're assuming that euploid is normal, and I just don't know that we can say that. I think we might be mixing messages here, right? Um, I think we're that we're realizing there's a lot more than just the number of chromosomes, and euploid might be noise in the way we're measuring that. But stuck in that noise might be finding other genetic abnormalities that actually might have clinical significance other than missing or adding a chromosome. And I think to close out our discussion here, if you're going to be transferring mosaic embryos, I think it's probably incumbent on you to have that conversation with the obstetrician or the maternal fetal medicine specialist on the other end. Because um, one of the pieces of data that would be really helpful here is if we'd had stuff beyond NIPT. You're basically doing two screening tests back to back. PGT is a screening test. NIPT is a screening test. And what you really want is diagnostic testing. You want amnio, CVS. Um, you want karyotypic data of these fetuses and the placental tissue to really kind of arrive at what's going on with the quote-unquote mosaicism seen in the embryo at PGT through pregnancy. And I want to emphasize that, that Pietro, really good point. PGTA, as much as we think it is, is not a diagnostic test. It's a screening test. And stay tuned for what that actually means, <laughs> but uh, I, we overinterpret the results. All right. Well, that was a really outstanding summary of, a, I think, an important paper in our field. I'm glad that Fertility and Sterility chose to highlight it as a seminal contribution, as I think they did with the previous VOD work on this exact same topic. Kurt, Eve, let's keep moving. We have a, another cool paper coming out of the Canardis group. The Nordic countries have put together some more data for us from the population level. Kurt, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this paper? 
Sure. Uh, I'm really pleased this one is published in Fertility and Serility as well. It's uh, a well-done study on an old issue, and it's the risk of congenital malformations in live board singletons conceived with ICSI. And as you mentioned, Pietro, it's a Nordic study from the Cronardis group. The first author is Anna Karina Herrington. I'm sorry if I mispronounce that, Herrington. Uh, and the senior author, Anja uh, Peenborn. So good group of people using fantastic data. I'm always jealous when they get the, the Nordic surveillance data together and they can have such wonderful high quality data. Yes, it's still registry data and, and that has its own problems, but we're talking about three and almost four countries having all of their data being able to synthesize in terms of who had IVF, how they had IVF, and, and what happened with the births, and in some cases, the children. So this study is to investigate the risk of major malformations in live birth singletons conceived with ICSI compared to IVF. I'll start up front. It's, it's, it's a, there's a bit of a controversy in this field. What they're studying is live-born infants, and they're excluding stillborns. And I'll just put it up front that that's, that's always been a methodologic concern, because what if you know, some of the, the damage done by ICSI results in a stillbirth and you're excluding those children from the analysis. Luckily, that's not a very prevalent outcome, but I'm just throwing it out there. Anyway, this is looking at data from the early 90s all the way through 2014 in Sweden, Denmark, and Norway. Again, as I mentioned, you know, they have wonderful cross-references from the registry. It's a large paper. You're talking at um, 33,000 children conceived with ICSI. Another um, Almost 15,000 conceived with IVF and, you know, 4 million, almost 5 million conceived without medical assistance during the study period. They also included a new analysis, which was frozen ICSI versus uh, fresh ICSI. Uh, that's the embryo, not the sperm, by the way, but that analysis had, had never been done. So what do they conclude? And I'm not going to give you, well, I'll give you some of the numbers. Um, they did a number of analyses. And basically what they're saying is that there is a higher rate of congenital malformations in children conceived with medical assistance compared to those that are not. But there's some intricacies back and forth. So if you compare ICSI to IVF, the incremental rate is only about 7% or 1.07 relative risk. But if you compare ICSI to those without medical assistance, you're talking about a 28% risk in congenital malformations. And the authors politely and correctly say these are um, small but significant risks. Now, one of the conversations we should have had is what does significance mean? But in this case, I would say it's both statistically significant and clinically significant. A lot of times I've argued this in court and in other places that you know very small odds ratios and relative risks are, are really hard to say, are they really correct? Are they really real? Are they really significant? But when you're talking about studies this size, they are. You might not say that you know 28% risk in congenital anomalies is a lot, but when you're conceiving you know hundreds of thousands of children, that's a lot of children with a potential congenital anomaly that may or may not have been associated with the procedure that you put them under. That's a business axiom. You know, 99.9% accuracy sounds good when you're making iPhones, but if it's if it's not 99.9, that's a lot of bad iPhones and a lot of missed opportunity in business and waste. I'm not suggesting children with congenital anomalies are waste. What I'm saying is that the number is real and the number is significant. So let's tell the story a little bit because I learned a lot from it. Remember, ICSI was introduced in 1992, and there were some scientists when I was at Penn at that time that were studying the zona pellucida and all the different mechanisms. And, and there was a ZP1 and ZP2 protein, ZP3 protein, and you know how this all this fertilization work. And some of that is a great idea. Let's just put the sperm directly into the egg. Why are we worried about this? And it worked. And it's one of the largest 
most influential natural experiments you're ever going to see. But really, it hasn't been well studied. And a lot of people are suggesting this really does bypass a number of natural selection barriers. It really does mechanically disrupt the egg. Um, and I guess there can be people that do good ICSI and bad ICSI. And then what does that mean if you do have an embryo that survives? Obviously, you could hurt an embryo. But and then you know, what does it mean in terms of children? I didn't know this, but there's a number of um, meta-analyses that say that children conceived with ICSI compared to without medical assistance have a, a higher de novo chromosomal aberration. I've heard that as a fellow. There's chromosomal abnormalities with ICSI, but I don't really know what that means. <laughs> I don't think they mean aneuploidy. I think they, they, they mean somehow that is associated with a demonstrable difference on karyotypes. But what they're looking for here is in this study is not just chromosomal abnormalities, but major uh, malformations, which, as we all know, are sometimes associated with chromosomal abnormalities and sometimes not. Briefly, they found a couple of interesting things. I'm not going to go into the uh, the specific malformations, but let's talk about the absolute number. I thought the general malformation rate in the general population was 2 to 3%. In this case, we're talking about a rate that's above 4%. So I'm not sure if that means there's more than I thought or just just that's the baseline level that they're measuring. So that's what they're comparing to. And then they're finding that the, the rate is actually going up as high as 5.5% and 6%, depending how you, you work at it. So the definition matters a little bit. And Kurt, one caveat here is this is coming from these Nordic countries that have a universal health care, and probably the degree of reporting is more standardized and uniform. And I have to imagine they're picking up more than what we pick up in the United States with kind of our patchwork system of healthcare and data collection. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So that that's what I mean by the, the definition matters is that if they have a very strict definition or they surveil the children very well, you're going to have a higher level at baseline than than you might think if no child was ever evaluated by a pediatrician or brought in for medical care. The first take-home message is the rates of congenital malformation are higher with IVF in general. And then the next one is they're even higher with ICSI. The specifics of it are hard to decipher because you go through the chart of all the different you know profiles and, and the different classifications, and that's where you get into multiple comparisons. You're not really sure which one is correct and which was not. They mention respiratory as one of their findings, and I'm not sure if that'll hold the test of time. But they also mention when they can assess ICSI for male factor, that hypospadias was actually higher. Later in the data, they appropriately point out that they can no longer differentiate male factor from non-male factor use of ICSI because everybody's getting ICSI, or not everybody, but the, the ICSI is being used on a lot of people with non-male factor infertility and therefore having trouble ferreting out the difference. And they did point out in a nice graph that the indications for ICSI have clearly shifted and that there's a greater use of ICSI even in the Nordic countries. What do you make of this, guys? I mean, it's it's basically saying maybe not surprising news, but it's just so well characterized and laid out, it's hard to poke holes in it. What it's basically saying is ICSI works. We're certainly using it. But if you really pull back the curtain, you are, you know, associated with a, you know, a, a 20 to 30% increase in congenital anomalies. And that adds up when you when so many people are conceived with medical assistance. So I'm not really sure what to say about this other than it refreshes our memory that it's not an innocuous procedure. What were your guys' take-home messages on this? Yeah, I mean, I I think my take-home was very similar in that we really need to be using ICSI with discrimination and with caution in those patients who would really benefit from it. And I think that there, you know, certainly in counseling, I, I do talk about rates of congenital anomalies with ART, 
with the overall idea that congenital anomalies are higher in patients who have infertility as opposed to those who conceive without medical assistance. And I think that that is a really important take-home point of this paper. And there have been other papers that have more elegantly broken that down in terms of duration of attempting conception. But I think that it's really hard when they don't separate out the chromosomal abnormalities in the category of congenital abnormalities. So they had a higher rate of chromosomal abnormalities in the patients who underwent ART, possibly because of assisting conception in those that may have had translocations or may have had other issues. And so there's a higher rate of chromosomal abnormalities, which may lead to a higher rate of congenital abnormalities in those patients. And so I think like I would have liked to see them separate out the babies that were that didn't have Down syndrome or other chromosomal abnormalities that we know go along with congenital abnormalities. And so I I agree. I have a very healthy dose of caution with the use of ICSI, but I think that was one area of the paper that I found a little bit confusing is to not separate out aneuploidy and the impact of chromosomal abnormalities on congenital abnormalities. I think the the biggest thing for me is what does the patient do with this information? What's the alternative for that patient whose husband has pretty significant male factor infertility and it's either ICSI or you're going to be talking about adoption? No, or frozen eggs. I mean, I think that's one thing that that scares me a little bit is, you know, typically, and especially with all of the egg freezing that's going on now, and I don't want to say our... Um, I don't want to say our cavalier attitude towards it, but I think the push towards egg freezing and then so many patients who come back who haven't attempted conception are like, all right, I'm ready to use my frozen eggs. And I have to say this gives me a little bit of pause on that because the only way in this day and age that I'm aware of at least to have optimal fertilization rates using a previously vitrified oocyte is via ICSI. You're taking on a lot of added risk along the way. So I thought I knew a lot from this paper. It maybe reinforced what I thought I knew, but um, I also want to just geek out for a little bit. I said at the beginning that these are significant findings. So I think that a relative risk of that rate is significant in a population level. But what I look at in a well-done large study like this is if you can move some of the people into different categories, if you can change the significance by taking a few out of the exposed and putting the unexposed, then I really think the paper doesn't stand on its own as statistically significant. In this case, it does, clearly. I mean, this is not like you made it by two cases, it's statistically significant. That's why I mean that these results are robust. But you also find findings here that are, are strange. I don't know if you guys picked up that if the, it, that and about the same magnitude of risk, children conceived with ICSI had a lower risk of preterm delivery and low birth weight. And how do you explain that? These studies always raise more questions and are never as definitive as I propose to make them. So I think that this adds to our literature, but you know, again, I don't know if that finding that if you conceive with ICSI, you have a 20% reduction in preterm delivery is a real finding or something that I would tout as a benefit. And Kurt, is that compared to the insemination group or is that compared to the unassisted conceptions? Both. Because you think from the unassisted conception group, this is kind of that highly desired pregnancy phenomenon where people's behaviors may be different in pregnancy if they needed, had infertility, needed IVF to conceive, do they... 
take time off from work? Are they on bed rest? You don't know what happens. And could that be some of this reduction of preterm birth? But if you're seeing it in the INSEM group, yeah, these, these are great questions. I, I do agree. A congenital malformation is more of an objective outcome. Um, there's more that goes into preterm delivery than just how you conceived. But it does, all I'm saying is it does raise more points. Um, yeah, I mean, discussion. I think the, the last point is really what do they classify as a congenital anomaly? And I remember reading the papers from Australia a decade ago that started to first report on congenital anomalies in ART. And when they looked at the minor malformations, it was things like earlobe detachment, <laughs> like that. Th- is th- a, this was major. This was a good, good definition of major malformation. It wasn't minor. I guess my question for you, Kurt, is: Are there things that are considered major malformations in the paper that we might not think are threats to the health and the well-being of the child? Well, these are ICD-9 codes, so they must have been picked up by a pediatrician, but. You're right, Eve. These are definitional debates that we have all along. This was, a, again, a relatively standard and, and well-validated outcome that they're using medically, but you're right. It gives me pause. It makes me think about what we do. But again, with everything, I'm, I, I think you have to balance what are the good parts and what are the risks. And for those interested in what are the major malformations, Table 3 breaks it down by different organ systems. You can see um, where along the spectrum they came. Great paper, great discussion. Let's keep moving. I have a the next paper, but we're going to stay on topic here. We're going to be talking about male factor and fertility again, specifically cryptospermia. As you all know, that's that super tricky situation when there are rare sperm that are seen under the microscope, but only after centrifugation of a semen sample. Given the rarity of sperm, these men are commonly counseled to undergo surgical sperm retrieval when they think there are insufficient sperm for ICSI. And many of you probably know and suspect that surgical sperm retrieval is not benign. And there's a large proportion of our patients that would like to avoid having to undergo that procedure if they can. The tricky part is it's unclear how many men are able to avoid surgery um, by providing an ejaculated semen sample on around the day of their partner's egg retrieval. And it's also unknown whether or not that sperm that is retrieved from the ejaculate has decent reproductive outcomes. So the authors of this study decided to answer that question. And the authors here are people you all know well, but my old friends from Cornell, Giampiero Palermo, Peter Schlegel, and fellow Jenna Morrison. They decided to evaluate their practice of having men who are scheduled for microtessy provide a fresh sample on the day of surgery, which at Cornell was the day before egg retrieval. And when modal sperm are found, they are given the option of either using this sperm for ICSI and deferring surgery. And when they defer, they ask the men to provide an additional sperm sample on the day of retrieval, which is 24 hours later. The goal of the paper here was to determine the prevalence of sperm in fresh samples and then look at the ICSI outcomes from the sperm that was utilized. One important sub-analysis here that they also wanted to look at was the impact of short and very short abstinence intervals on the sperm cram- parameters for these men with cryptospermia, because the l- recent literature suggests that there may be benefit for men with oligosteinosospermia, but they've never looked at this crypto group specifically. They define short abstinence interval as 24 hours and very short abstinence intervals, which are typically on the order of hours. Um, so men producing and then being asked to produce another sample an hour or two later. They looked at a total of six years of microtessy cases in men with both azospermia and cryptospermia who were judged to have inadequate sperm for ICSI. If no sperm were seen on the evaluation of their NEAT sample or 100 sperm or fewer were identified in the concentrated sample, then these men were classified as having cryptospermia. 
when rare sperm were found, they did an extended search that typically took anywhere from two to six embryologists and often took anywhere from two to four hours of searching, um, of course, with the help of pentoxifiline when there was low motility. So in total, they had 727 men who were scheduled for microtessie. And of those men, right around 10% had sperm identified in their ejaculate on the day of their surgery. Three quarters of these men, interestingly, had a previous diagnosis of azospermia. And about 20% of them had an AZFC mutation. And two of these men had a Robertsonian translocation. The other percentage of this group were men with cryptozospermia. Only 50 of these men who had sperm in their ejaculate opted to use the ejaculated sperm for ICSI. And if you take a look at the multivariable logistic regression that they performed, they found that men who had FSH greater than 7.6 were associated with lower chances of finding sperm, and men who had a testes volume greater than 12 cc's had a positive association with being able to find usable sperm in the ejaculate. So not all men were created equal. Some had a better kind of prognosticator going in to that surgically scheduled procedure. So of all these cycles that were reported, 83% resulted in an embryo transfer. And the reported clinical pregnancy here per retrieval was 38%. That seems pretty amazing for men with azospermia and cryptozospermia using ejaculated sperm and much higher than the 20 to 25% reported elsewhere in the literature. Um, so that's kind of an important number to highlight here. But let's drill down a little bit on what happened to those semen samples. So when men who had sperm in their ejaculate on the day of their microtessie, which again happened a day before egg retrieval, when they came back the next day, 24 hours later, 97% of them still had sperm present in their ejaculate. And this was the sperm that was used in about 90% of the reported cases. Interestingly, and you're probably wondering, there were no statistical differences in the semen parameters from the day before and the day of egg retrieval, aside from motility, which was slightly improved on the day of retrieval, 50% versus 33%, which again, if you're using ICSI for these men, I'm not sure is a clinically meaningful difference, but something that is kind of highlighted as um, statistically significant. And to drill down this on this even further, they looked at men who had produced two or more samples on the day of retrieval, this quote-unquote very short abstinence group, 34 men in total. They found no difference in semen parameters here. So I know we've talked a lot about short abstinence period may be helpful for men with male factor infertility. In this subgroup of men with crypto and azospermia, there was no statistical significance here in very short abstinence periods. So what's an REI to do with this data? Well, it's important to contextualize that this is, was done at Cornell, a center where microtessies performed fresh and paired with IVF cycles. Most centers are not doing this. Most centers are doing frozen microtessie and then a later date doing the thaw of that sperm and ICSI in IVF cycles. I think the, the top line counseling number here is that in men with cryptozospermia and even azospermia who are scheduled to undergo a tessie, 10% will have sperm on the day of their surgery and may be able to avoid surgery. That's not nothing. If you ask men their willingness and kind of interest in having um, a testicular exploration for finding sperm, we, one in 10 could avoid it. I think that's a big deal. It's not a benign procedure. We don't know how this compares to men who went through microtessie without sperm in the ejaculate, and the 20 or so men who had no sperm and still went through microtessie. And to me, this was kind of the major, come on now, you got to tell us that. Like, that's, I think, the missing part of this paper, and hopefully that they're going to be looking at this in subsequent work. But I, I wanted to know that from this paper. And then kind of the last two points, the, the authors found that the second production on the day of retrieval showed sperm in 97% of cases, and that sperm had higher rates of motility. So this wasn't a fluke. This wasn't men who like, oh, sperm showed up out of the blue. This is men that if you had them produce today and then produce tomorrow, sperm was still there. Um, I think that's also an important counseling point to figure out, like, is this 10% a, a miracle event or is this kind of persistently happening for a small group of men? And it looks like it's persistently happening. 
And then finally, I think for the for the patient and for the REI, when you do use the sperm that was found in the ejaculate in these men who you weren't expecting to have it, and you paired it with ICSI, lots of pregnancies were achieved and probably more than I suspected were achieved and more than the literature has previously reported. And some of this may be that this is fresh testes. Some of this may be that this, these are fresh transfers in poor prognosis patients. Um, I'm not sure, but that's kind of an amazing counseling number that I'm sure others are going to be trying to replicate and see if that's their experience in their center. I'll shut up for a second. Eve, Kurt, I want to ask you guys a little bit about microtestes in your centers. Are these microtestes that are being performed fresh like they do at Cornell, or are these kind of how they're being performed at my center now at Boston IVF that are kind of separate from the IVF cycle? Yeah, we're still doing fresh. We do fresh microtessie for men with non-obstructive azospermia or extremely low counts. And I thought this was really interesting. Typically, what we will do in these patients is we'll have them do multiple attempts at sperm banking prior to their tessie. And we do end up canceling a fair number of cycles before they make it to TESI. We actually don't have them do a semen analysis on the day of micro TESI, but I think it's a good question to go back to our urology team and see whether or not we want to think about changing that process. Interestingly, we, we tend to do them mostly frozen, and, and that's the reason is logistical. And I think it's yet another answer of non-specificity in data results. The, our our team will say, well, the results are not all that different. I don't really know what that means. It means that it works when it's frozen. Whether it's actually optimal to do it fresh is another question. And then the, then you're balancing, again, logistics versus how much better a fresh Tessie is. So again, call for papers. This is, this is important stuff. Think about the logistics in your practice rather, um, as well as the, the optimal outcome. Yeah, I mean, I will be the first to admit the logistics can be a nightmare. <laughs> I can't imagine then canceling the TESI the day before the logistical nightmare that that would cause for our urology team and shifting around schedules and office schedules. One thing, and this is a little bit off topic, but one thing that we had talked about was whether or not we should be vitrifying the oocytes ahead of time and then using fresh TESI on the day that is convenient for the urology team to get the fresh tessie and using warm oocytes on that day to take out the coordination of the IVF cycle with the tessie. That's a great question, Eve. Uh, I, I don't know. You think it's easier to freeze sperm or easier to freeze eggs? I, I, well, in the numbers, <laughs> so in the numbers from some of these micro tessies, we're getting 10, 15, 20 modal sperm. And so if you freeze those very small numbers of modal sperm on warming, you're going to have greatly reduced numbers of modal sperm. And so the thought process is that you can separate the two processes, but not separate it by freezing the sperm, but in a patient who has a good yield of, of oocytes or a patient that has high ovarian reserve, why not freeze the eggs and then use the sperm fresh? My insurance brain is thinking, but who's going to pay for that? You're going to well, be adding an was... egg cycle in there that's going to make it more so, expensive for patients. That was my exact argument to our group as we were talking through the logistics. Like in a mandated state where egg freezing is not covered, this may be a huge barrier unless there's some disruption and, and way that we practice that we can justify to insurance. Well, ev evidence-based aside that you struck a nerve. That's logical, right? Freeze the normal tissue because that one's less likely to have an impact than freezing right. the abnormal tissue. Good, good yeah. thought. This next paper is called Turner Fertility Trial 
fertility preservation in young girls with Turner syndrome by freezing ovarian cortex tissue, a prospective intervention study. So this was a um, this was a prospective intervention study with long-term follow-up whereby girls with Turner syndrome were included from a single center in the Netherlands. As our listeners know, Turner syndrome is a genetic condition caused by partial or complete absence of one X chromosome. This affects multiple organ systems resulting in cardiac abnormalities, short stature, and primary ovarian insufficiency. Both girls and women with Turner syndrome report infertility as a major concern. Oocyte vitrification can be performed only for those who have ovarian activity after the onset of puberty. Ovarian tissue cryopreservation, or OTC, holds promise for prepubertal girls with Turner syndrome. However, little is known about the timing of follicular atresia and the timing of oocyte depletion. The main outcome measure for this study was the presence of follicles in ovarian tissue from ovaries that were removed laparoscopically from girls with Turner syndrome. So in this study, they had unilateral oophorectomies that were performed in 93 girls with Turner syndrome. And what they looked at was the follicle density or whether or not follicles were found in those samples. And in those 93 girls who had a unilateral oophorectomy, only 30 had follicles that were identified. There were complications of surgery that were reported in five of 93 girls, including suicidal thoughts in one girl upon hearing that no follicles were found. They looked at karyotypes in these girls from two sites, um, both peripheral lymphocytes as well as buccal cells. 13 girls were found to have an additional 46XX line with the addition of the second site, the buccal cells for karyotype testing. Of the girls that were non-mosaic, only one had follicles present. And of the 33 girls that were mosaic and had a 46XX cell line, 22 of 33 had follicles. What I thought was really interesting was that there was no correlation found between age and the presence of follicles. The authors found that a presence of a 46XX cell line, spontaneous onset of puberty, or the combination of a measurable AMH, which they defined as greater than 0.1, and a normal FSH, less than 10, predicted the presence of follicles in the tissue. And so I think overall it's really interesting and more data are collected, but I do think that this may help to better guide who should undergo OTC versus who should not. Um, If we could predict preoperatively who wouldn't have follicles, we would prevent unnecessary surgery for a large group of these patients. So I think a really nice, well-done study that provides some very tangible information that we could use. Eve, I was listening to you present this paper, and I remember that recently we had a paper accepted, and I think FNS reports that looked at the Northwestern experience on ovarian tissue cryopreservation. Curious what your counseling is like. Do you see many pediatric patients with Turner syndromes at Northwestern? I know at Boston IVF, we don't. And I'm wondering if there's just a missed opportunity here for just counseling at baseline, but potential intervention um, for these patients early, um, like this paper suggests. Yeah, so we have an affiliation with Lurie Children's Hospital, and Lurie has a Turner Clinic. So there are a lot of patients that come through the Turner Clinic, and it's a robust area for research. And then I'll put our parent hat on. We both have daughters, Eve. If your daughter or my daughter was found to have Turner syndrome and kind of fit into the parameters of this study, you're a reproductive endocrinologist. I'm a reproductive endocrinologist. Would you 
recommend your child go through oophorectomy to be able to have a one in three chance of retrieving follicles in the future? I don't know. That's a really tough question. I will say that I was happy when I had a second daughter who could potentially be a backup source of oocytes for a first daughter <laughs> in, the event that, in the event that somebody needed an egg. I don't know. I, yeah. I think it is, there's so little that's known about the actual molecular underpinnings of Turner and about atresia and about when we have atresia. And I think that OTC is also emerging and we're getting better in it, but would we really be at the place where we can have functional usable oocytes? And keep in mind too, that if it's the real deal of Turner, then those patients probably should not be carrying a pregnancy either. And so OTC, it's not just the re-implantation of the ovarian tissue that you're talking about, but now you're talking about the reimplantation and IVF um, and using a gestational carrier um, for patients who have Turner syndrome. So I I think I might not, but I I don't know. I think it's really hard to say unless you're actually in that situation. Yeah. The other part of me, I think, worries a little bit about, you know, we know that these ovaries will stop working at some point. And does these extra few years of endogenous hormone production have any long-term benefit for bone health, heart health, brain health that exogenous hormones is not going to give them? And I think that's that's the risk benefit that I weigh with this is remove one ovary sounds great, but it's going to be very low utility. I'd rather eke out some more utility from the, the hormonal production for a few more years. Yeah, I thought the the mental health aspects were also very scary. There were several girls that reported severe emotional distress in finding out that they had no follicles and one was suicidal ideation. So I think we also have to really pause and think like, what is this fertility? What are these efforts at fertility preservation? What are they helping and what are they harming? Well said. Great that this research is being published. Kudos to this group for <laughs> aggregating so much data on such a rare um, clinical outcome. Um, really helps us out a lot. All right, Kurt and Eve, that was a outstanding discussion. There's a lot of good science that we covered, but even more science that we did not cover. Encourage everyone to check out the print or the online edition of this month's FNS. There's so much good stuff there that is worth looking at. You're probably going to be hearing this podcast right around the time of the ASRM national meeting. We are going to be recording live from the ASRM this year. You'll hear myself, Eve, Micah, Kurt, and a host of our interactive associates doing on-the-ground interviews with authors, prize paper winners, and uh, key opinion leaders in our field. So stay tuned for those episodes. I know they're always popular ones. Eve, you've done some heavy lifting from Eshri and ASRM before. I think this will be no different, hopefully with some really outstanding content. I'm excited to see you both in New Orleans and have a good rest of your day. Bye, everyone. Until we meet again. Bye-bye. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. 
The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.